thank you for your donation to Corbono, a nonprofit organization dedicated to the study of Scripture according to the mind of the Catholic Church. If you like this talk, we invite you to share our website, www.corbono.com, with others so that together we may participate in the evangelization of the third millennium. Our speaker, Najim Awad, lives in San Diego, California with his wife and seven children and has been studying and teaching scripture since 1995. Najib believes the Catholic Church holds and teaches the fullness of truth, and with his tremendous zeal and insight, he is able to communicate that raw truth without sugarcoating the teachings of the Catholic Church. He also believes that our job is not to change the truth, but to communicate it clearly and directly to others. And now, here's Najib. So we are tonight continuing our study of the book of Genesis with chapter 43 and hopefully chapter 44. Um, it is actually a fairly short chapter, so uh, we may have a chance. I mean 44. But before I start these two chapters, I thought I would uh, again share with you a little bit of uh, the world events that are happening right now. No doubt most of you are following what is going on out there. And uh, if you have not listened to the series on the book of Revelation, I really strongly encourage you to go to the website, Corbono, Q-O-R-B-O-N-O, and consider uh, investing $99 into the 50 or so talks. It's about $2 a talk. Because we, we are going to need a pretty good understanding of the book of Revelation in the years ahead. Uh, I am not one to believe, not even a second, that's my personal belief, that the end of the world is coming, although it might seem or might feel like so. But I do believe um, that uh, the Lord is going to do something absolutely magnificent, something that we cannot see right now, that we cannot touch, uh, something beyond our imagination. He is going to prepare all of us for the evangelization of the third millennium, as John Paul II had told us. And the way he usually brings this about is recorded for us in the book of Revelation. This is not the first time. It's not going to be the last time. It has happened before. It will happen again. The book of Revelation is precisely the book where he tells us exactly how he governs the world. Not only at the end of time, but throughout the entire history, because he's always in control. And so if there's anything you're going to gain out of this study is the firm belief that Jesus is in control. And once it gets rooted in your heart that He is in control, then you start confronting your real fears, which is not the fear of hunger or the fear of poverty or the fear of any of those things, but simply the fear that God may not love you enough or that He's not powerful enough. That is the real fear that is at the depth of our hearts. Because if you do believe that He loves you, and you do believe He's all-powerful, then there's nothing to fear. Right? So, it will help you clear up these things. So today, obviously, when you observe what's going on out there in the world, you can, you can think and reflect and say, well, it looks like we are right when the seals are being opened. Because the signs are being given. Right? 
Natural signs, we've had a number of those. Whether it's earthquakes, whether it's the volcano, whether it's the spill, and there may be more. Economic signs, I think uh, I don't have to tell you more about those, although I would not be surprised if in the coming this year or next year, a number of countries literally default on their payments. And I'm not only thinking of you know, Portugal, Italy, Greece, and Spain, uh, but more importantly, Japan and the UK. Their debt rate is very, very high, uh, which will then turn into inflation, and that will create a set of economic hardship to come. We're not out of the wood, and I just happen to work for a financial company. So uh, professionally, I'm kind of connected to all of this. We're not out of the wood by any stretch of the imagination, unless, of course, surprises happen, and they do happen. Um, and typically, these things, when you combine them together, lead to what? Wars, right? So as you can see, when you read the Gospels, you see our Lord saying there'll be wars and rumors of wars, and this is only but the beginning, the birth pangs of what is to come. I think we are in the birth pangs of something that is large, and I hope that I'm right, because the alternative is far worse. Because if I'm wrong, and we recover economically, and suddenly we have a string of good news, nature is back to doing its own thing, and economically we're all doing much better, and we're getting richer, and we all have jobs, and poverty is reduced, and wonderful things are happening out there, guess what is going to happen? More abortion, more contraception, more homosexual rights, more people going to hell. That, my friends, is God's wrath. We typically have it upside down. We think when things get hard, economically, financially, when uh, we don't have what we want, that's God's wrath, obviously. And when everything is going fine and we have everything we want, that's God's mercy. It's actually the exact opposite. Because what we want is not usually the thing that saves us. It is the thing that we don't want that saves us. After all, if what we wanted was the thing that would save us, why did he have to die on the cross? We could have saved ourselves. But it's precisely because we can't save ourselves that he had to die on the cross. Do you understand? Okay. That's how you have to start seeing it. Because if you live in fear, if you live in anxiety, if you live in doubt, if you live with this overhanging black cloud of concern over your head, what are you really saying? Either I don't trust him, which is one of the things, or the other is exactly what the Jews said at the foot of the cross. Come down and we will believe in you. Not the cross. He was very clear. If you want to be my disciple and follow me, what are you supposed to do? So look how schizophrenic we are. On the one hand, we read this passage and we all nod our heads. Right? Then we turn around and look at our reality. What happens to us? Right? We take off so quickly, our shadow stays behind. Huh? You need to understand this breaking inside of each one of us because of original sin. It is there. We are not one inside of us. 
the fight with the old man, as the Lord says, or St. Paul, continues, goes on. It's part of the battle. We're all fighting this. It's completely normal. He knows that. He said it. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Here you go. The spirit is willing. Oh, yeah, I'll take my cross. Oh, yeah, I'll follow you. I'll do everything. I love you. Oh, inflation, unemployment, da-da-da-da-da-da-da. Well, let's reconsider, Lord. How about a smaller cross? Right? And the only thing that free us from the cycle is what? Conviction. When we're convicted in our heart, we're ready to do something. Therefore, we need the truth. The truth is the only thing that will free us because it brings us to conviction. And we can act on it. So what gives us truth? Supernatural faith. Faith is what brings us to truth. Because it opens us. St. Thomas says, faith is what? Faith is yielding to the ascent. That's how he defines faith. Yielding to the ascent. Not doing the ascent. Not climbing that mountain. Just saying, yeah, I will climb if you can climb with me. That's faith. So that's what we have to develop. And that's what these Bible studies are all about. We're not here to become theologians, but to be grounded in the truth so that we can live our life according to the truth and fight the good fight. Yeah? So every time in your daily lives, when you say, Lord, I trust in you, when you look at all, everything in front of you and you say, well, right now, life out there can look exactly as bleak as when you were hung on the cross. No different. When Our Lady saw you hung on the cross, when the apostles took off and ran away because you were hung on the cross, it looked bleak. It looked the end. There was nothing. The disciples of Emmaus, didn't you hear what happened to Jesus? He was, that was it, right? Put an X on it. The end of the story, right? And they lived unhappily ever after. That was their conclusion. And so often we are tempted to arrive at the same exact conclusion. We're going to live unhappily ever after. Because the situation is so bleak out there. And it is. It is. But that's where you have to go, whoa, Lord, what do you have up your sleeve? What are you preparing? Because whatever you're preparing is going to be amazing. If it is so bleak, then whatever you're preparing is going to be so bright. I can't wait to see it. I trust in you. That's what it means. Right? Hmm? That's what it means. So, again, keep steady in your faith. Keep steady. Keep your heart steady. Do not waver left or right. He is in control. No one else is but the Lord. That's very important. He's in control of every minute details of your lives. And he's in control of the grand scheme of the universe. Maybe universes. Maybe there are multiple universes he created. Who knows? He's in control of it all. And he loves you. If you can meditate on this, and you root your life in him, then you can live in peace in the middle of trials. That's how the martyrs could go to their martyrdom singing. That's the power of the Holy Spirit in their lives. And we're coming up to the, gift, to the Feast of Pentecost. So now is the time in your prayers to gear up to prepare for this feast. So when it happens, the, Lord, the Holy Spirit may come upon you as well and give you that peace and that strength of heart 
to do what you must do. Yeah? Any questions on that? All right. So, with that, let's begin with Genesis chapter 43. Now, the famine was severe in the land. How appropriate. And when they had eaten the grain which they had brought from Egypt, their father said to them, Go again, buy us a little food. But Judah said to him, The man solemnly warned us, saying, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. If you will send our brother with us, we will go down and buy you food. But if you will not send him, we will not go down. For the man said to us, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. Israel said, Why did you treat me so ill as to tell the man that you had another brother? They replied, The man questioned us carefully about ourselves and our kindred, saying, Is your father still alive? Have you another brother? What we told him was, in answer to these questions, could we in any way know that he would say, Bring your brother down? And Judah said to Israel, his father, Send the lad with me, and we will arise and go, that we may live and not die, both we and you, and also our little ones. I will be surety for him, of my hand you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you, and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. For if we had not delayed, we would not have returned twice. Then their father Israel said to them, If it must be so, then do this. Take some of the choice fruits of the land in your bags and carry down to the man a present, a little balm and a little honey, gum, myrrh, pistachio, nuts, and almonds. Take double the money with you. Carry back with you the money that was returned in the mouth of your sacks. Perhaps it was an oversight. Take also your brother and arise. Go again to to the man. May God Almighty grant you mercy before the man that he may send back your other brother and Benjamin. If I'm bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. So the men took the present, and they took double the money with them and Benjamin. And and they arose and went down to Egypt and stood before Joseph. When Joseph saw Benjamin with them, he said to the steward of his house, Bring the man into the house, and slaughter an animal, and make ready, for the men are to dine with me at noon. The man did as Joseph bade him, and brought the men to Joseph's house. And the men were afraid, because they were brought to Joseph's house, and they said, It is because of the money which was replaced in our sacks the first time that we are brought in, so that he may seek occasion against us and fall upon us to make slaves of us and seize our asses. So they went up to the steward of Joseph's house and spoke with him at the door of the house and said, O my Lord, we came down the first time to buy food. And when we came to the lodging place, we opened our sacks, and there was every man's money in the mouth of his sack, our money in full weight, so we have brought it again with us. And we have brought other money down in our hand to buy food. We do not know who put our money in our sacks. He replied, Rest assured, do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father must have put treasure in your sacks for you. I received your money. Then he brought Simeon out to them. And when the man had brought the men into Joseph's house and given them water, and they had washed their feet, and when he had given their asses provender, they made ready to present, uh, they made ready the present for Joseph's coming at noon, for they heard that they should eat uh, bread there. When Joseph came home, they brought into the house to him the present which they had with them and bowed down to him to the ground. And he inquired about their welfare and said, Is your father well, the old man of whom you spoke? Is he still alive? They said, Your servant our father is well, he is still alive. And they bowed their heads and made obeisance. And he lifted up his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, and said, Is this your youngest brother of whom you spoke to me? God be gracious to you, my son. 
Then Joseph made haste, for his heart yearned for his brother, and he sought a place to weep. And he entered his chamber and wept there. Then he washed his face and came out, and controlling himself, he said, Let food be served. They served him by himself, and then by themselves, and the Egyptians who ate with him by themselves, because the Egyptians might not eat bread with the Hebrews, for that is an abomination to the Egyptians. And they said before him, The firstborn according to his birthright, and the youngest according to his youth. And the men looked at one another in amazement. Portions were taken to them from Joseph's table, but Benjamin's portion was five times as much as any of theirs. So they drank and were merry with him. So now this is the second journey to Egypt, and it's getting us closer to the climax where Jacob is going to reveal himself to his brothers. And um, we noticed that the famine was severe. So they went up the first time to back to Canaan, and they had the food that they brought with them, and they ate all of it, but the famine persisted. Therefore, now again, they're in predicament. They need some food. There's nothing left, and therefore they need to make a decision. Now, who is the spokesman? It's Judah. No longer Reuben, but Judah. We will not hear of Reuben anymore. And uh, really, the, the dialogue is between Judah and Joseph, the two sons which will yield kings to Israel, Jacob. And Judah is the one who speaks, and he says, the man, abbreviated from the man who is the Lord of the land. So they, that's really what they mean, the man who is the Lord of the land, or the man who is really in control of the land. Joseph is henceforth called a man, while the brothers are correspondingly termed the men. And this anonymity precisely is, is constructed in such a way that it highlights or will um, uh, increase the drama when the, when the names are revealed, when the man becomes Joseph. So uh, it is, it, it, from a literary point of view, this is also a masterpiece. This whole passage of Joseph is written with, from, uh, by an author who really masters the style very, very well of how to tell a story. Now, obviously, we've heard it so many times that we're kind of a little bit jaded. We know what is going to happen, and most of these details escape us. But it's important to note that even in the writing of Scripture, uh, you have care, of um, stylistic care, and there are styles that differ from one story to another. And hence, when you interpret Scripture, you must take that into, into consideration as well. Now, the word was warned which expresses solemn admonition, which is almost a threat. So when Judah says, the man warned us, it really carries the, um, the, the English word in this case, carries it very well. It is a threat. Right? Don't come back or else. And the report that they, give to the, uh, that they give to their father right now does not correspond to the conversation we saw in chapter 42. But as we will see from the next chapter, there is something to lead us to believe that indeed the questioning had happened where Joseph really extracted from them all this information. So, and that's particularly from chapter 44, verse 19, we'll see that Joseph had indeed asked the specific questions referred to here. Now, the argument reached that end, and Joseph essentially has to remind Jacob of his duty towards the entire group, not just to Benjamin. Very, very bluntly, very simply, we go down, you have two choices. You Benjamin stays here and we all die, or we have to take our, um, our chance by going down with Benjamin. And he points out to him, verse 8, you and we and our children, and he lists them in ascending order of importance to himself. You, we, our children. So, 
that's what he's, uh, he's doing essentially to attract uh, the attention to his father, that there is more than Benjamin here. And the boy, Naar in Hebrew, uh, refers to Benjamin. And we don't really know, know as what, what, how old he is, but uh, we think he must have been probably around 17 when he went down. Because that word, Naar, can also indicate a male from infancy all the way to marriageable age which kind of gives you the indication that um, for the ancient, anybody who is um, from infancy to marriageable age is considered to be still a kid and right? hasn't reached the age of reason. And I think these days, in our lifetime, the age of, region prob the age of reason probably starts around 50. So in verse 9, Joseph, uh, J Judah takes on the, the uh, guarantee of uh, Benjamin. He basically says, I will be his surety. I will uh, personally uh, take care of him and protect him. And um, it's almost like a legal responsibility. This is a very strong response he's taking on. He's not saying I'm just going to protect him. Almost legally bound, bound to him. And you will see how he will act in 44 to, to, uh, to act upon this. Um, so he's taking le legal responsibility for a debt contracted by another. That's how powerful the statement is. Uh, unlike Reuben, who told him, who told his father, if I don't bring him back, kill my kids. You see the violent bend that Reuben had. Judah says, much, being much more responsible, I take on legal responsibility for him. I will act on his behalf, and I will pay his debt, whatever it may be. So in that case, the guarantor may undertake to ensure that the borrower will not disappear, or he undertakes to repay the loan should the borrower default, which is kind of very ironic in the time we live in. Um, when he says also, I shall stand guilty before you, it essentially says, I am taking upon myself not just the um, absence of Benjamin, should I not bring him back, but also all the other consequences that may stem out of it, may it all come upon me. So he bound himself legally, and essentially he bound himself morally to bringing back Benjamin to his father. Now, if it must be so, Judah's forceful speech has its effect. Jacob has no further resistance. He yields to the argument. And uh, in this case, what he does is that he um, gives them order, first of all, bring gift to Joseph and to the man and payment for the grain. And just as he tried to mollify his own brother Esau when he came down with gifts, he says, send him gifts first and then give him back the payment in this order. Right? The gifts first, and then the, the money. Then he says, take product, choice products of the land. And um, it's really a difficult expression to translate. I'm going to spare you the details. The best way to look at it is what he's saying, is that take what is strong in the land. Take the strength of the land. Not only the the best of what the best of what grows in the land take the best of what grows best in the land right it's just very interesting because you notice in the list carry down to the men of present little balm little honey gum myrrh pistachio nuts and almonds well honey is a mistranslation because there is no evidence of agriculture in the land of Israel in biblical times. 
and therefore they did not really have honeybees to take care of. Honeybees are, in, if, if you have cultivation of honeybees, it is an indication of an agricultural society, not nomadic society, right? So therefore they probably didn't cultivate honey. But um, because the, the, the actual product that is thought of here Probably the thick, intensely sweet syrup made from dates and grape juice, which is called dibis. For those of you who are from the Middle East, you know what I'm talking about because we... Well, not molasses. Molasses is from a specific tree. In this case, dibis is a word that covers a variety of things. In this case, what you do is that you take, you take uh, dates and you mix them with uh, grape juice. Right? So it, it's a very intensely sweet syrup. Right? And, uh, but then they, in English they, they just translate it as honey because presumably that, that doesn't exist in, in, um, outside of this area. So they essentially are going to bring this down all the way to, to Joseph. The interesting thing is that the balm, that syrup I told you about, and the nuts would have been actual products of Canaan. But the spices and myrrh were important. So even though he said take the most expensive things, he's also including things which are not grown in Canaan. They're probably important from, um, from, from mostly from Africa. And they are really uh, precious gifts, almost like gold, right, to, to mollify him. And then double the money. Take the money of last time and then take as much this time around. And then finally take your brother. So notice how he lists them in order of importance. In the gifts, he lists first the things that are grown in the land. Then he adds the really expensive items and finally his own son to, uh, to him. And then um, go at once right away. And so they do. They do. Here's St. Ephraim's take on this passage. Jacob was constrained by the famine, whether he was willing or not, to send Benjamin with them. So he gave them supplies and sent them off with blessings and said, Just as, as I was bereaved of Rachel, so am I now bereaved of Rachel's children. Judah comforted his father and said, If I do not bring back Benjamin and set him before you, then let me bear the, the blame forever. Then they took some of the choice fruits of the land. Then they went down and stood before Joseph. Joseph commanded his steward to give them lodging in his house. And so the, um, you will see again a little later, yeah, right here. But, w- but when the brothers saw Joseph's servants hurrying to unburden their beasts and to bring in their baggage, they said to themselves, grieving, We have buried our father Benjamin, and we shall never again see the face of our father. It was with treachery, treachery that our money was put into the openings of our packs, so that if we escape, spying, they might seize us and make us slaves of theft. Let us confess to the steward about the money before he begins to accuse us so that our brother Benjamin might free us from the charges of spying and the confession of our lips from the charges of theft. This is against St. Ephraim. So what he sees in this whole passage is the um, instruments that are given them for their confession. So often God does the same with us. In our lives, some of the things that we are really pursuing, some of the things that we really want, are the things that are going to finally bring us on our knees for confession. And oftentimes we don't perceive that. We're not 
wise enough to see that what we're doing is really is the cause of our undoing. So you might be, it might be um, a pride. It might be your interest in a specific uh, activity that you're really intensely given into it. It might be the fact that you don't have time to talk to a friend. You don't have time to take on a phone call. Whatever the case may be, all these things can be there to prepare you to that moment in time where there is a breakdown in your life and you realize what you're doing. God burdens us in order to later on unburdens us unburden us. This is how his providence often work. So sometimes he has to make our life a lot harder before he can ease it off. Why? Because we tend to be like what? Yeah, sheep, but also sometimes like donkeys. Right? Very stubborn and very, very stiff necks. Right? And so he has to work with us to essentially break it. So they, now they went down and they immediately presented themselves to Joseph. And what that means is that they really arrived at the trading post over which Joseph presides. So they sought him directly. They didn't go to any other trading post, but sought where Joseph was because of the exchange he had with them previously. And they need to show him that they brought, they brought their brother with them. And then uh, Joseph tells his uh, steward, send them to my house. Why does this fill them with dread? What is the reason why this would fill them with dread? reason is really simple, as we saw it with Potiphar. In Egypt, the prisons were held in the house, in the homes of important people. So presumably, Joseph had also a prison where he lived. So as soon as they heard that, the thought that came to mind is, we're headed straight to jail. Why? Because Simeon, remember, is still there. He's in jail. So they're thinking, we're going to go and join him now. But then instead... They get there, and they um, immediately entreat the steward and talk to him. Now, the steward, remember, is the man of um, a trust. He is the right man of Joseph. And so, therefore, he's aware of everything Joseph is talking about, and he knows pretty much what's going on. So, when they tell him, look, here's the situation. We had the money, but it was put back in our sack, etc., etc., he plays along. And he tells them, don't worry about it. I got my money. God must have been good for you because you got your money back. And again, when you hear the word God, don't necessarily take that to mean Yahweh. We don't know which God this Egyptian is making reference to. And again, to the ancients, the fact that I have my God and you have your God, and my God can do things and your God can do things is quite all right. And your God sometimes is stronger than mine, and sometimes my God is stronger than yours. It's very strange for us because we are accustomed, we, we, we've, we know and believe there is only one God and everything else is not God. And the, the God we believe in is all-powerful. Not so to the ancients. The gods were not all-powerful and they did not have jurisdiction over everyone and they couldn't do everything all the time. So here's what St. Ambrose has to say about this particular passage. They indeed had said to him, We found the money of each one of us in our sacks. We have brought back our money in full weight. O mighty mysteries and mysteries clearly portrayed. This is to say, Why are you puffed up? Do you assume too often that the money you have in your sacks is your own? What indeed do you have which you have not received? But you have received it. Why do you boast as if you have not received it? Now you have been satisfied. You have become rich. You believe that you possess the money. 
But the God of your fathers has given the money to you. He is your God, he is the God of your ancestors, and you have denied him. But he grants pardon, forgiveness, and receives you back if you should return. He is the one who does not ask your money, but gives his own. He has given you money in your sacks. Now your sacks hold money that used to hold mire. And therefore, he is your companion who says, You have cut off my sackcloth and have clothed me with gladness. The gift of gladness is Christ. He is your money. He is your price. The Lord Jesus does not demand from you the price of his grain, does not ask the way of your money. Your money is unsound. The money of your, in your purse is not good. I have received your money. That is, it is not your material money, but your spiritual money that is good. You have brought it down out of faith and devotion, like the sons of Jacob. It is expended without loss and is counted out without any deficit, seeing that for such a price the loss that is death is avoided and the profit that is life is gained. And so St. Saint, uh, Saint Ambrose sees in this passage mystically the, the Mass, where we come to Mass bringing our own money. And he sees two kinds of money, the material money and the spiritual mon- one. He says the material money is returned to you. And that can be interpreted in two ways. The first one is that it is not accepted. So if you co- come to Mass only with the intent of only giving material things, your, your gift is not accepted. Because... What does God give us on the altar? Himself. Hence, what is the only gift that is worthy of such a gift? Yourself. Anything beneath that is not worth it. Yeah? So in that sense, your money is returned to you. And I think I've told you already last week or the week before that unless you have had made sacrifices during the week, unless you have worked, you've done works of virtues, love, piety, faith, unless you've done something, you're coming to Mass empty-handed. Mass is the summit of your week, it is the end of your week, it is the beginning of your week. Everything flows to Mass, and everything flows from Mass. So St. Ambrose is pointing these, these things to us. You come with your money, the, the material money is returned to you. Now, spiritually, when you bring in a gift to the Lord, a sacrifice of sorts you have made, that gift is returned to you and it's doubled. You cannot outdo God in generosity. That's the whole idea. You know, oftentimes we don't see that. And hence, we, we have some concerns over what we want to give to God, what we want to keep to ourselves. And what I'm talking about, again, are not the big things, are the small things that may irritate you over everything else. You are set to go to Mass. You've been looking forward to go to Mass. You get to Mass. You sit down. And then 10 minutes later, there's this couple that shows up. They're harried. They sit right in front of you. And they have a baby. And the baby will not shut up. And they will not get up and go to the crying room or do something. And you're sitting there irked and irritated because they're taking mass away from you. And in the process, you're completely missing the point. The point is, this is exactly what God wants you to offer. That. That irritation and that sense that mass 
is not celebrated the way you want it to be celebrated, the sense that Mass for you is lost, is precisely what God wants you to offer. Because He is trying to tell you, hello, you've developed quite a spiritual sweet tooth. Yeah, you've improved. You're not after material things, but you're after spiritual things. You want the perfect Mass on earth. You don't want me anymore. You want your Mass. Because of that, he kind of knocks at your door and says, let me put this little irksome thing here in front of you and show me now if you really love me. Not in spite. With the couple and the baby. So then you turn your gaze to them and you offer your Mass for them and for that baby and you invoke God's blessing upon them all Mass long. And then God will say, well done, good and faithful servant. See, he does those things to us, doesn't he? He really has a knack for them. And unless you have a prayerful attitude in your, throughout your entire day, unless you protect your interior life and do not allow the events of the day to take it over to such a degree that you are unaware of what you're doing, meaning you're not aware of the Lord anymore, you're going to miss all these occasions, all these love letters that God is sending you all day long. You know, we did not invite texting, by the way. God invented it a long time ago. And we call it, in traditional Catholic teaching, holy inspirations. When a thought pops in your mind, maybe why you should do this. That's God, text, God texting you. He does it all day long. Learn to recognize Him in the irritations, the irksome things, the things that bother you, the, the little failures the difficulties, the challenges, the, when things are not going your way, learn to recognize God talking to you right then. If you can just recognize it, if you can just recognize it, even if on the spot you look like a steamer about to blow, but if you can just recognize it, you're not coming to Mass empty-handed. Just recognizing it. The only way you can do that is to do what St. Paul tells us, Pray at all times. What does he mean by pray at all times? Be mindful that God is talking to you. Expect Him to talk to you. The problem is, on our own, we cannot do it, right? Apart from me, you can do nothing. So how are we going to be able to do it then? How can we do this? Your guardian angel. If you're not calling upon your guardian angel, if you're not devoted to your guardian angel, if you don't pray to your guardian angel, if you don't thank God for your guardian angel, if you do not have devotion to your guardian angel, you are exposed. But if you have your guardian angel next to you and you're devoted to him and you pray to him and you know he's your constant companion, that you basically gave your guardian angel a little prick. And he's going to use it very effectively. And he will remind you, what are you doing now? I'm upset. Leave me alone. I know you're upset. But what are you doing now? Then you start to have these conversations with him. So that's how you have to, so you have to develop that habit. And again, unless you start your day with a prayer and you end your day, you end it. So in the morning, it's a prayer of offering. You're offering your whole day to Jesus, to God. You're telling him, I'm going to give you everything today is going to happen to me. I'm going to give it to you. You parents, when you start your day, tell the Lord... Every painful thing that happens to me, I offer it as a reparation for my sins and the sins of my family. 
and every good thing that happened to me, I offer it as a sacrifice of praise to the Most Holy Trinity. You offer everything. You invoke Our Lady, St. Joseph, the saints, you got an angel, you do that in the morning. And in the evening, it's about time to sit down and look at your day. How did it go now today? How did you do? Then you can sit down and say, okay, when did I think about you today, Lord? You enter in conversation. You praise God the Father. You praise God the Son. You praise God the Holy Spirit. You can start with the glory be, and then you praise each person of the Trinity separately. Praise God. This is your duty. Duty of piety. We must praise God. We praise Him separately. And then we think about our day. Very in simple, very simple terms. We, or you open up the Gospels. You read the passage of the Gospel. Very short. You meditate on it. What are you trying to tell me in this Gospel? Other books that can help you. Imitation of Christ, wonderful book. Spiritual Combat, wonderful book. Introduction to the Devout Life, wonderful book. Um, all these can be wonderful help in your time of meditation. You can spend 15, 20 minutes. If you can spend it up to an hour, if you can, be wonderful. That's wonderful to spend an hour with the Lord. Spend the hour, right? One hour with me. But start with 15, 20 minutes. Read a little glory to God. Glorify Him. Then um, read a passage of the Gospels or a song. Read the meditation from the uh, um, imitation to Christ because it's wonderful. It really helps you focus. And then think about your day in terms of your virtues. Okay, how did I do with or the commandments, if you will? It doesn't matter whichever way you want. If you prefer the commandments, take the commandments. Okay, you shall not have any other gods before me. I am the Lord your God. Were you my God this morning? And you just let the whole, let your God and angel show you what you did today. How when somebody talked to you and you just replied uh, so uh, abruptly on that spot, you became your own God. Right? How when somebody told you to do something you didn't feel like doing, you just ignore him. Okay? Just go through your day. Examine the good things and the bad things. And call upon God's help for the following day. Eventually, if you persevere with this, it becomes second habit. It becomes second nature. It happens. So you, you're shortening the time. It might happen 10 minutes after you've done something, then 5 minutes, then you start noticing why you're doing it. You keep on doing it, but you notice it. And eventually, you start catching it before it happens. Welcome to the spiritual battle. That's when you start growing in your life of faith. Until you take on that battle, you're walking with spiritual diapers. You understand? That's what God wants us to do. That's what we have to do. But if you do it all, you come to Mass on Sunday, you have something to offer. And again, little things. Very little things. You don't, you don't like your, your father. You can't, you, know, you can't stand him. Call him up, talk about the weather. Just about the weather. You have something to offer at Mass. Your neighbor is just somebody who you know, gets on your nerves all the time. See, it's, it's those, those things. Little things. Very little things. Your kids, you get home, uh, the, the dishes aren't made. Without saying a word, you go do the dishes. You don't wait for your mother to tell you. Little thing. Kids, go to your dad, your mom. Say, Mom, thank you for everything. I love you. Little thing. You're not coming to Mass empty-handed. Don't come to Mass empty-handed. Don't just bring your, 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 your dollars with you. Bring your dollars. And not one or two dollar bill, please. 
Okay, give until you're, it hurts. That's Saint, Saint Mother Teresa would say. But don't just bring your dog. Don't think you just come home. You come. Guy comes, shows up. You know, he treats his his wife like she's a she's a carpet, and he never tells his kids that he loves them. But he comes to church and he cuts a check of two hundred dollars every time. Well, the church the, the check is going to benefit the church, but it's not benefiting him. His money would be returned. Make sense? All right. So Joseph then inquires about Jacob. He really asks if his his uh, is if his father is in um, is alive and doing well. <clears throat> and they bowed and made obeisance. Remember the bowing again. I told you about the uh, how in Eastern rites we don't kneel but we bow, and all, it goes all the way back to this very ancient tradition in the East to bow when you show obeisance, not kneel. Kneeling never happens in the East; it happens in the West. Uh, but the, right now what they're doing, they're bowing, isn't a bow, bowing of uh, servitude, it's really a bowing of gratitude. They're basically showing that they are grateful that he's inquiring about their, fathering, their father, in that sense, honoring them. Right? That's what they're doing when they bow in this case. And then Joseph sees Benjamin. It's, um, all right, there's much we can say here. Suffice it to say, two, two little quick ideas. The first one in the negative is that Joseph sees um, Benjamin... And St. Ambrose points out again that we tend to see only those whom we love. So we have filters in our eyes. We see only those whom we love. You have to be careful with this one. Do we only see those whom we love? How do we know that? Well, if all your friends are cool, then yeah, you're only seeing those whom you love. If you see somebody who's handicapped and coming into the church, and you can't go and put your hand on that person who's handicapped, particularly if they're, let's say, mentally handicapped and don't have much control over their uh, facial features, if you're afraid to touch that person, right, you only see those whom you love, right? So that's one. The other, very interestingly, the reason why he, he loves him is because Benjamin is of the same mother as Joseph, Right? Right? Hmm. You all agree? Hmm. Be, 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 be careful to what you agree to. He's going to come back right straight at you. Back at you. Okay, very good. Now, I'd like you to take a look at all those who are present here. Yeah, look at everybody present here. Let me ask this question. Who is your mother? She's behind me, isn't she? Do we have all the same mother? Ah, how do we treat each other? This one is hard. This one is a lot harder than we think. A lot harder. Um, you know how it is. When, you've seen it in all your kids. You've seen it yourself when you were a kid, if you still remember. A friend comes over. You put on your best smile. You're all happy and giddy, and you're talking to them, and it's wonderful, right? Friend goes away. Your brother asks you for something, just whack him. <laughs> How many of you in the morning when you get up, and it's breakfast time, you see your brother or your sister coming down to have breakfast with you, and you just exclaim from the bottom of your heart, it is so wonderful that you're my brother or my sister. I'm so happy. I'm odd. I am glad. I'm going to kiss the floor. Versus, uh, okay, pass me the cereal when you're done, and don't eat all of it. Hmm? Familiarity breeds contempt, right? Yeah. So, 
Here's one little thing you can do, especially if you're going to Mass on the Latin Rite. You know, I confess the Confideor at the beginning of the Mass to Almighty God and... Okay, when you get to that point, mean it from the bottom of your heart because our sins hurt the church. This is why we also confess our sins before a priest because we're not just confessing our sins to God whom we have hurt. We're also confessing our sins before the representative of the church because our sins hurt the church. And we don't go to confession and we say, ah, I'm just going to talk to God directly. First of all, we commit a sin of pride as if God is willing to talk to us back simply because we said it right, with that attitude. Secondly, we're committing a sin against our family. We're saying, I'm not going to tell anybody sorry. I'm just going to tell God. Forget everybody else. Do you understand? So, mean it to you, my brothers and sisters. My brothers and sisters. Okay? And when you ask for prayer, really ask. And then when you get to that point, you pray for everybody around you. Otherwise, you're just doing the car wash Catholic thing. Take your car on Saturday, get it washed, and go to Sunday and get yourself a wash from the outside, but have no clue what you're doing while you're in Mass. Mean it. They're your brothers and sisters. Yeah. We have to see beyond those whom we just love. Because that is, again, selfish. It's about us. We have to start to see those whom Christ loves. That's the key. The other thing uh, St. Ambrose says, but I'm just going to pass on, point it out to you. In his view, Benjamin prefigures St. Paul. He sees in Benjamin prefiguration of St. Paul. All right. And then they sit down to eat. Now, Joseph is sit, sits by himself. His family sits by themselves. And the Hebrews sit by themselves. Right? And uh, the, the, um, you will notice a couple of things. First of all, the, as, as Scripture says, the Hebrews sitting with Egyptians to eat is an abomination to the Egyptians. God did not invent this concept of abomination. He essentially adopted it from well, what I mean by God didn't invent it, I mean when he communicated to, to, to Moses and to the Jews his law, and he speaks of abomination, this notion of abomination already existed among the Egyptians. To them, anybody who was not Egyptian was a barbarian. Right? So the Egyptians, like most um, uh, cultures based of empires, were snobs. Right? The Greeks were snobs, the Romans were snobs, the English, the British were snobs, were snobs here in the United States, right? If you don't believe me, just go out and see the number of stores that claim to be the number one this and the best in the world for that. And obviously, we are the best in a bunch of different things. Right? So it's, it just comes with the territory of being an empire. So they had their fair share of it, and therefore they, it, would, it would be um, unbecoming for an Egyptian to sit with a barbarian at the same table. Hence, they had to be isolated and eat by themselves. The thing that it struck them, though, is that they were seated by order of age, and they were really taken by that, wondering how was he able to do that. Well, obviously, Joseph knew, but they didn't know that he knew. Right? That explains the, the uh, seating order of uh, why they were actually sitting this way. And obviously, this whole thing is a setup. It's preparing them because they, now they can relax. Everybody's together. Simeon is with them, and they're having a good meal, and so things are going well. Right? But in fact, Joseph is preparing them for what he's going to do right after. The one thing I would say also about this chapter, verse 43, 34. 
Benjamin receives more portions than others. Did you notice that at the end of the chapter? Portions were taken to them from Joseph's table, but Benjamin's portion was five times as much as any of theirs. Why do you think Joseph did that? Why did he give Benjamin five times as much as everybody else? Because, obviously, Benjamin was obese. No. Why? Why did he do that? Why was he showing favoritism? He's testing them. He wants to see how they're going to act. Right? Now, you might think, hmm, Joseph is kind of strange in doing this. But you know what? Somebody else is going to pick up that habit. His name is the Lord Jesus Christ. Not everybody receives the same portion at the table of the Lord. Everybody receives from the table. Everybody eats their fill. But not everybody receives the same portion. And I've said that many times, and people are really surprised. God is not a socialist. He doesn't take his love and split it into equal pies and give to everybody the same pie. He doesn't do that. God loves all and loves all enough to die for them, for them to be saved, but he does not love all equally. He loves some more than others. The Gospel of St. John says it explicitly. right? He whom the Lord loved most. But we also know that God, our Lord, loves Our Lady far more than He would love anybody else. That's completely normal. Or St. Joseph, for that matter. But the same thing happens. He might give some of us more than others. Also to test us. To see how we would react. Do we praise Him? Or do we get envious? Or jealous? What happens in our hearts? Same exact thing. Yeah? Okay. And so everybody drank and were merry with him. Everybody were, were happy. Alright. So, 44. Fairly short chapter and it flows fairly well with this one. Then he commanded the steward of his house, fill the men's sacks with food, as much as they can carry, and put each man's money in the mouth of his sack. Here we go again. He's returning the money one more time. And put my cup, the silver cup, in the mouth of the sack of the youngest, with his money for the grain, as he did, and he did as Joseph told him. So now he's putting the cup into the, the, the um, Benjamin's sack. As soon as the morning was light, the men were sent away with their asses. When they had gone but a short distance from the city, Joseph said to the, to the steward, Up, follow after the men, and when you overtake them, say to them, Why have you returned evil for good? Why have you stolen my silver cup? Is it not for, from this that my Lord drinks, and by this that he divines? You have done wrong in so doing. So, one clarification about this cup. And if you have seen the play or the movie on Joseph, you probably have a, a little bit of a warped understanding of all of this. It's not exactly as it happens in Scripture, with some liberties. I just happened to watch this uh, play yesterday called Joseph in Technicolor or something like that. And um, when Pharaoh showed up dressed as Elvis Presley, I thought, hmm, somebody's taking a little bit of liberty with Scripture. I don't remember Elvis Presley mentioned in Genesis. All right. This cup is not a small cup that he's drinking from. It's not a drinking cup. It's a divination cup. It's a, div- it's a cup for divining. I'll tell you more about it in a minute. 
just it's a large one, it's a precious one, and it's one set apart for, if you will, um, I would not say liturgical, but really for um, the divining, so sort of in, in their mind it would be magical or sacred use. So it's a very important cup, all right? Hence, it makes the crime a lo- uh, that, mo- that um, uh, much more serious than what we might think of it if we ju- just thought a small cup. When he overtook them, he spoke to them these words. They said to him, Why does my Lord speak such words as these? Far be it from your servants that they should do such a thing. Behold, the money which we found in the mouth of our sacks, we brought back to you from the land of Canaan. How then should we steal silver or gold from your Lord's house? With whomever of your servants is to be found, let him die, and we also will be my Lord's slaves. Um, Notice the rash talk. They're so certain of themselves that they take on a step rather rashly. And we must always be very careful with that. We tend to do that. Okay, so obviously, if you ever use the word, I swear to God, stop. You're invoking the name of the Lord in vain. Or worse, you're taking on a rash oath, and he will hold you to it. So just don't do that. And don't swear by anything. Just don't swear. And our Lord tells us very clearly, don't swear, neither by the heaven nor the earth, because they're footstool of the Lord. Don't swear. Let your yes be yes, your no be no. And that's it. They should have done that. No, we didn't do it. Instead, whomever you from, let him be dead, and we will become your slaves. They couldn't think that they could be set up. He said, let it be as you say, but he with whom it is found shall be my slave, and the rest of you shall be blameless. Let it be as you say, and he changes it completely. So what he's trying to say is, I get your intent. We'll settle it right now. But we'll settle it my way, meaning my master's way. Then every man quickly lowered his sack to the ground, and every man opened his sack. And he searched, beginning with the eldest and ending with the youngest, and the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Now the tragedy comes to its highest point. Then they rent their clothes, and every man loaded his ass, and they returned to the city. When Judah and his brothers came to Joseph's house, he was still there, and they fell before him to the ground. Joseph said to them, What deed is this that you have done? Do you not know that such a man as I can indeed divine? Now, don't take that to mean that Joseph was engaged in divination. He was not. It is part of his persona. He's a high uh, lord in the court of Egypt. They all use divination. Therefore, he must do that. He's playing the role. But it doesn't mean that he's doing it himself. Okay? Okay. And Judah said, What shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's slaves, both we and he also in whose hand the cup has been found. And now there is the longest, the longest monologue in all of Genesis, if not in all of the Old Testament, right now by Judah. And it's beautiful. Here is someone who is acting like what? Firstborn son. Remember, Genesis is all about how every firstborn is crashing, starting with Adam and down the line. Here is Judah assuming this role of the firstborn. Here's what he says. What shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how can we clear ourselves... 
God has found out the guilt of your servants. First, he admits guilt. Second, he doesn't say, you found out the guilt of our ser- your servants. It is God. Notice how he sees this as a conversation between God and they. He sees God's action. He sees God is in control. You see what he's doing? So, first, from Judah, there is an act of piety. He is declaring God to be the God of glory and the God of, that is all-powerful. Second, there is an act of humility. God has found our guilt. He's confessing sins. He's saying, I, we are sinful. Third, he declares the truth. We are, my Lord's slaves. Now, he is now taking on the defense of his brother. Note, note, note how he's doing. But before that, Joseph answers, Far be it from me that I should do so. Only the man in whose hand the cup was found shall be my slave. But as for you, go up in peace to your father. So obviously what Joseph wants is to keep his brother. And notice, he's trying to keep his brother all along without disclosing his identity. He hasn't come to term with the notion that he has to reunify the whole family. All he wants right now is his brother. That's all he wants. Then Judah went up to him and said, O my Lord, let your servant, I pray you, speak a word in my Lord's ear, and let not your anger burn against your servant, for you are like Pharaoh himself. My Lord asked his servant, saying, Have you a father or a brother? And we said to my Lord, We have a father, an old man, and as a, and a young brother, the child of his old age. And his brother is dead, and he alone is left of his mother's children, and his father loves him. And you said to your servants, Bring him down to me, that I may set my eyes upon him. We, we said to my Lord, The lad cannot leave his father, for if he should leave his father, his father would die. Then you said to your servants, Unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you shall see my face no more. When we went back to your servant, my father, we told him the words of my Lord. And when our father said, Go again, buy a little food, we said, We cannot go down. It, if your youngest brother... If our youngest brother goes with us, then we will go down, for we cannot see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. Then your servant, my father, said to us, You know that my wife bore me two sons. One left me, and I said, Surely he has been torn to pieces, and I have never seen him since. If you take this one also from me, and harm befalls him, you will bring down my gray hairs in sorrow to shale. Now therefore, when I come to your servant, my father, and the lad is not with us, then as his life is bound up in the lad's life, when he sees that the lad is not with us, he will die, and your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to shale. Uh, Judah is not exaggerating. He's basically telling Joseph the truth. And in so doing, in, sti- in sticking to, these, to the truths, he's also doing an act of faith. He's trusting that God, through the truth, will bring something good out of this. And then he does the last thing that, a, that, a, that a, an, an older brother, a firstborn, must do. He, he offers his life in exchange of his brothers. This is how Judah really, in that case, is uh, uh, prefiguring Christ. And this is why Christ comes from the line of Judah. For your servant became 
Yeah. Now, therefore, let your servant, I pray you, remain instead of the lad as a slave to my Lord, and let the lad go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the lad is not with me? I fear to see the evil that would come upon my father. So, Judah truly loves his father. He's concerned about his father, and he wants his father to, uh, to, not to die, even if it means being separated from his own family. Indeed, Judah's sacrifice is very big. And my sense it is precisely because the way Judah acts that Joseph will decide to reunify the family and reveal who he is. It is Judah, essentially, who's te teaching Joseph a lesson also. I mean, this moment is probably one of the highest points in all of Genesis where Judah is doing something of his own that is a little bit similar to what Abraham was called to do. Judah has to sacrifice his family for his father. He's married, he has children, and he's saying, take me as a slave, I may not see anybody anymore. He doesn't know this is Joseph, right? To him, this man is as powerful as Pharaoh. He's doing all of this so that his father and his younger brother may live. This is very powerful. And again, back to what I told you in the beginning, imagine how bleak the situation must have sounded or must, must have looked for Judah at that moment. Imagine how desperate it must have been. And yet God was preparing to do something beyond his wildest imagination. Because he showed faith. Yeah? So a couple more points. Divination. Um, as I told you, it's, um, it's a uh, bowl used to divine things. And that technique of divining by means of a goblet or a big bowl is well known from the ancient world. It took various forms. The use of water was known as hydromancy or oil, oleomancy, or wine, oianomancy, or pouring oil into water, lekanomancy. And lekanomancy was used during the time of Joseph. So what they would do, they, they would have a big, a big a cup, which they would fill with water, and then they would take oil and drip it into the water. As you know, oil and water don't mix. So the, the oil take on, takes on various shape, and they will study the shape and divine things. I mean, seen from the demon's point of view, how ridiculous we might look. Somehow thinking that by dropping oil in water and this thing taking on a random shape, we're divining the future. I mean, how stupid can that be? You see how the degradation of the rational thinking bring us closer to the animals? Because we start to act without reason. And this is well alive. I mean, this is doing... I mean. People in this field are doing really well today because a lot of people read their horoscopes. Somehow, somehow, human being, a good portion of human being, are convinced that stars, which are essentially uh, big uh, gaseous things powered by atomic energy, millions of light years away from us, influence our lives. We are willing to believe this more so than we're willing to believe that God Almighty influenced our lives. Being gullible and being a Christian are 
two opposite things. You can't be gullible and being a Christian. Because it goes against the virtue of wisdom. And the virtue of knowledge. Which are given you during your confirmation as part of the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Each and every one of us are given those things. It is very important to understand that. So that is perhaps, in in a sense, this chapter right now, this uh, chapter 44, is really the culmination of uh, the entire story of Joseph. From now on, it's just going to go down. Obviously, from an emotional point of view, the the climax is yet to come. But from a theological point of view, this is it. As I told you earlier, God structures our lives and puts hardship into it to get us to confess our sins, and then to elevate us, to bring us to higher glory. And you can see in the case of Judah, this is exactly what happened. So this is as much for Joseph as it is for Judah. Through it, through it all, God is working His own plan to bring about the Messiah, the promised one from the line of Judah. And you can see that in that case, there is much love for Judah because he structures it to bring Judah to that point where he will assume the role he's supposed to play. And he gives him the grace to be able to do it and Judah rises up to the occasion and does exactly what is expected of a firstborn. He was not ready, you see. His heart was hardened. He's the one who sold him as a slave. He was acting as an anti-firstborn. Right? But then he had his kids, kids of his own, And he saw the suffering of his father and remorse of what happened when they sent his brother away. And he was put in jail. So all these things broke the hardness of his heart. And brought him to the point of his life for him to make that great sacrifice. To give it all up so that he can actually save his father from a greater pain. And he does it. And as I said, if you now see it from Joseph's end, this must have broken his heart which explains why he reveals himself to his brothers later. Now he has full confidence that the one who sold him has completely repented. And he knows him to be the leader, so he feels confident being able to do that and reveal who he is and the family is reunited. You see, it's in the giving of your own life that healing comes about in your own families. There's no other way. So again, if you have people in your families who are not believers, who are far from the faith, who, who don't want to come to church... You pray for them, yeah, but you offer sacrifice. You offer sacrifice on their behalf. And again, little things. You don't like doing the dishes. Do the dishes for them. You don't like to take the garbage out. Take the garbage out for them. So do it cheerfully. If you can do a little thing like that cheerfully. Cheerfully. Right? God loves the cheerful giver. Cheerfully. God eventually will hearken to your prayer. And things start to happen. Yeah? All right. So we'll take a... um, uh, We'll end with a word of prayer. And then uh, we'll take questions. But then those of you who need to be on their way, uh, may God be with you and bless you. Please stand. All right. Questions? Oh, very good question. Excellent question. 
if doing things that we don't want to do will save us, what about doing things for other people that we want to do? Very good question. Here it gets tricky. There are two types of graces that God gives us. There are graces which He gives us to give to others. And these may or may not benefit us. Because we may want to do it, but for the wrong reasons. Either because it makes us feel good, or it makes us happy, or it increases our vanity, or we can think of ourselves being saints or holy, or etc., etc. Exhibit A, Judas. He was one of the 70 that God sent out. He may have performed miracles. He may have raised the dead. Who knows what he would have been able to do. Why? Because God gave him a power. Exhibit B. A priest that does not believe in the Eucharist. If that, and there are priests who don't believe in the, in the real presence. If that priest says the words of consecration, the Lord in his body, blood, soul, and divinity is truly present on the altar. Even though the priest is not going to benefit from this Mass, we are going to because it's a grace that is passing through him to us. Do you understand? So, anything we do because we love to do is the kind of thing that we need to take back to the Lord and ask him to purify our intentions so that we're doing it for him. Oh, that perfect. That, that this, is, this, is, this is sort of what I was talking about. When you're giving, get to the point where you love giving because you understand the sweetness of it. That's wonderful. It's great. Yes. So you're giving it out of love. You see, you've, you've been able to get to this point in your life where you can forego these things out of love for somebody else. Yeah, that's wonderful. Right? But now, the real way we can show Jesus we love him is when we can do something that gives us no pleasure. There is no pleasure for us. So, for instance, people complain sometimes about the rosary. Right? They say the rosary. Right? And you may be in that boat. I am certainly in this boat. I've been saying the rosary for... Oh, I can't even remember now how long I've been saying the rosary. But when I say the rosary, there is absolutely no sensitive pleasure for me in the rosary. Nothing. It's the most arid difficult prayer for me to say that you can imagine. There's nothing. I have no consolation, no pleasure. My mind races like I have ADHD. Maybe I do, I don't know. Doesn't stay put for a second. Goes all over the place. Nothing. So, all I say is, ha, see, mom, it's all yours. I got nothing out of it. All right. God bless you. We hope you've enjoyed this talk from Carbono. For more information about this and other talks, please visit our website at www.carbono.com. Thank you and God bless you.